is titled, What is the Gospel? So in Acts chapter 13, we'll be reading the first three verses and then skip a bit and then continue at verse 13. In the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simon and Niger, called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Maine, who had, was brought up with Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. Verse 13. From Paphos, Paul and his companions sailed to Perga in Pamphylia, where John left them to return to Jerusalem. From Perga they went to Pisidian Antioch, and on the Sabbath they entered the synagogue and they sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the synagogue rulers sent word to them saying, Brothers, if you have a message of encouragement for the people, please speak. Standing up, Paul motioned with his hands and said, Men of Israel and you Gentiles who worship God, listen to me. The God of the people of Israel chose our fathers. He made the people prosper during their stay in Egypt. With mighty power, he led them out of that country. He endured their conduct for about 40 years in the desert. He overthrew seven nations in Canaan and gave their land to his people as their inheritance. All this took 450 years. And after this, God gave them judges until the time of Samuel the prophet. Then the people asked for a king and he gave them Saul, son of Kish of the tribe of Benjamin, who ruled 40 years. And after removing Saul, he made David their king. He testified concerning him. I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. From this man's descendants, God has brought to Israel the Saviour, Jesus, as he has promised. Before the coming of Jesus, John preached repentance and baptism to all the people of Israel. And as John was completing his work, he said, Who do you think I am? I'm not that one. No, but he is coming after me, whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. Brothers, children of Abraham and God-fearing Gentiles, it is to us that this message of salvation has been sent. The people of Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognise Jesus, yet in condemning him they fulfilled the words of the prophets that are read every Sabbath here. Though they found no proper ground for a death sentence, they asked Pilate to have, them, have him executed. When they had carried out all that was written about him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he was seen by those who had travelled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. They are now his witnesses to our people. We tell you the good news. What God has promised our fathers, he has fulfilled for us their children by raising up Jesus. As it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I've become your father. The fact that God raised him from the dead never to decay is stated in these words, I will give you the holy and sure blessing promised to David. So it's also stated elsewhere, you will not let your holy one see decay. For when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep. He was buried with his fathers and his body decayed. But the one whom God raised from the dead did not see decay. Therefore, my brothers, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is justified. 
from everything you could not be justified from by the law of Moses. Take care that what the prophets have said does not happen to you. This is what the prophet said. Look you scoffers, wonder and perish, for I'm going to do something in your days that you would never believe even if someone told you. As Paul and Barnabas were leaving the synagogue, the people invited them to speak further about these things on the next Sabbath. When the congregation was dismissed, many of the Jews and devout converts to to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who talked with them and urged them to continue in the grace of God. That's a scripture reading for what Carl's preaching on. But if you look at verse 44, on the next Sabbath day, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. It's pretty special, isn't it? Would that happen in Launceston? Thanks, Carl. Oh, can't even undo that. Oh, I'll just have to leave it. It's fine. No, it's fine. It's fine. It'll be good for me. The learning curve, learning experience. Well, uh, it's a good question, I think, uh, isn't it? The, uh, the, the title of the sermon today, What is the Gospel? That is, if someone was to ask you what the Gospel is, what, what is it that you would say to them? What... How would you explain the gospel to them? If, if you go to work tomorrow and your colleague says, tell me, what is it that you believe? What, what's so good about the good news of Christianity? What would you say? If your child says to you, what is the gospel? How would you explain it? Or a family member? How would you explain it to them? Uh, it's a useful exercise, I think, to go home and to think about, to write down the kinds of things that you might say Uh, in explaining the gospel to someone. You might be sitting here yourself and and wondering to yourself, I I don't even know what the gospel is. I'm not even 100% sure about what the gospel uh, really is all about. Uh, There's this Jesus thing going on, there's a God thing going on, there's something about a cross, but I don't understand how it all goes together. Maybe you've been coming along for ages and it still doesn't make sense. Maybe you've come along today for the first time uh, and you're eager to hear. The truth is that there's lots of things, I think, that you can say about the gospel, lots of different ways that you can explain it. Some people are weighed down by their past and they need to hear the good news about forgiveness, that God forgives us through Jesus. Other people are longing for something better and they need to hear that the better thing is in Jesus Christ. Some people are addicted to sin. And they need to hear that in Jesus there's freedom from slavery to sin. Because the gospel meets every human need, there's lots of different ways, I think, that you can explain the gospel. You can explain it from Ecclesiastes, you can explain it from the Psalms, you can explain it from Genesis, you can explain it to to meet all different kinds of needs. But there are, I guess, some common threads which tend to come out. Well, here in Acts 13, Luke records an extended sermon from Paul uh, in which Paul explains the gospel to religious people, to people who were churchgoers of the day, to people who were zealous for God but hadn't quite grasped perhaps what the problem really was and how Jesus was the answer to that problem. And in thinking about Paul's uh, sermon this morning, we can discover the good news for ourselves and I think we can also discover 
better ways that we can explain the gospel to others. Well, we met Paul a few weeks ago in Acts chapter 9 when he was dramatically converted to God. He was also known as Saul and he's called Saul in the first half of the chapter and then Paul in the second half of the chapter. Uh, He'd been a fierce opponent of the church and of Jesus, but God had wrenched him out of that. He dragged him uh, into the kingdom of God. He dragged him to believe in Jesus Christ. Uh, And Paul had become thoroughly convinced that Jesus was exactly the man that he had said that he was. That Jesus was the Son of God and the Saviour of the world. And now in Acts 13, Paul and Barnabas are sent out on their first missionary journey. In verse 13, they arrive in this place called Perga and they visit the local Jewish synagogue where they're asked to speak. And Paul begins, he begins, please notice, by motioning with his hands. Uh, There's an affinity there, I think, that I feel with Paul. There may not be other things that I have in common with Paul, but but here is biblical justification uh, for excessive hand movements. Uh, Paul motions with his hands and he begins to explain the gospel. And he begins somewhat surprisingly in, in a place I don't think that we would begin. He begins by telling the history of the people of God in the Old Testament. In fact, he spends an an inordinately long amount of time on that topic. He says in verse 16, Men of Israel and you Gentiles who worship God, listen to me. The God of the people of Israel chose our fathers. He made the people prosper during their stay in Egypt. With mighty power, he led them out of that country. He endured their conduct for about 40 years in the desert. He overthrew seven nations in Canaan and gave their land to his people as their inheritance. God chose the people of Israel to be the nation through which he would uh, bring blessing to the world. He chose Israel to be the nation through which he would restore the world to be what he made it to be. To be a place where people loved and served God and, and a place of justice and peace and compassion and mercy. Now you might think it sounds a bit odd that God would choose a nation to do that. Why would God choose a nation to do that? But the truth is that we see that kind of paradigm, that kind of way of working in the world around us all the time. As we speak, people in various places around the world are fleeing their own countries and are going to other countries in search of a better life. They aren't just fleeing corrupt people, they aren't just fleeing sort of their own personal bad circumstances, they're fleeing corrupt governments, corrupt nations. And they aren't just going to countries where they think that people are nicer, but they're going to countries where the governments govern well. They're going to places where there's justice and equity and where there's less corruption. And it's not just refugees who are doing that, but migrants are doing that all the time, right? Leaving the countries where they've been born and going to better places. Because there's a hope that that country, that government, is doing a better job than the one here. That is, putting the world right can't be extracted from governments and rulers and societies and countries and places where those governments rule. God's program to fix the world can never just be about him putting my life together and your life back together. It has to be about God putting together the whole fabric of society, the whole fabric of the world. It has to involve putting nations back together, not just nations but bringing every person in every nation in the whole world together under the rule of God the King. 
And so consistently through the Old Testament, God showed that just replacing one human king with another one, one government with another government, never solved the problem. Paul alludes to that in verse 18. He says that after God rescued the people from Egypt, God endured their conduct for 40 years in the desert. Didn't fix the problem. Better rulers, a better government, new place, still the same old people. The same idea is conveyed uh, in a few verses later when Paul remembers the period of the judges uh, and the reigns of uh, some of the kings. Paul doesn't say why he refers to those things, but for his audience who knew the Old Testament well, they would have twigged pretty quickly to what he was talking about. During the period of the judges, God's people kept turning away from him. Uh, You know, God would rescue them and then the people would turn away from God uh, and then they'd come back and then they'd turn away again and things would go to custard and God would bring them back. It was a terrible time. And the book of Judges uh, in the Old Testament ends with these words which describe the situation. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as he saw fit. Which is really the the motto of our age, right? Uh, Be yourself, be true to yourself, don't follow anyone else, uh, just do, do what you want to do. After the judges, God raised up another man, Samuel, to lead the people. But the people complained about him and asked for a king. And the king they got was Saul, who was not that great. He was a disgrace. He led the people poorly. He turned away from God. He led the people away from God. Then God raised up David, who was a man after God's own heart. But even David failed to create the utopia that people were longing for. David sinned, his family fell apart, his mistakes uh, cost the nation. It's not as though any of this caught God by surprise, as though he thought, well, I'll give that a go, no, that didn't work, Uh, I'll try this, and that didn't work, Uh, and so then he's like, oh what am I going to do? I'll send Jesus, that's what I'll do. No, it's not that God was caught out by surprise. Rather, God was showing always that something more was needed. God moved his people to a new place. He gave them their own country in which to start from scratch. He gave them a new ruler. He gave them ruler after ruler. But it never fixed the world. We spend our lives searching for utopia. We spend our lives searching for a better place. We think if only we get a new government, things will turn out better. If only we depose that Prime Minister and get another one, then the the country will be better off. We've spent the last six years doing that, deposing Prime Minister after Prime Minister, in the hope of a better country. And things might be better, right? I mean, it's not as though all governments are just as, uh, are equally bad. Some things are better under some governments than others, right? But even the best government can't solve all our problems. And no government can solve our deepest problems. There's some recognition of that, I think, in our world at present. There's widespread disenchantment in the Western world with democratic governments. There's an increasing polarisation in countries. We spend our lives searching for a utopia that governments can't bring. Or if we're not thinking about governments, we think to ourselves, well, if only I move to a new house, 
or a new place or a new town or a new state, a new church, a new job, a new country, a new spouse, a new family, a new group of friends. If only I can do that, then people won't drop things in church. We spend, we spend our lives searching for a utopia that nothing can bring. And the problem is that none of those things solve our problems because wherever we go, we take ourselves with us. And we're as much the source of the problem as anything else. We take our selfishness, our pride, our self-reliance, our godlessness, and wherever we go, we meet other people who are just as messed up, just as broken, just as tragic as we are. I can't even put my own life back together, let alone help the world put their lives back together. What hope do we have, even if we form UN Mark II? The good news of the Old Testament was that God has a great plan to fix the world. But the bad news of the Old Testament is that it couldn't happen just by moving people from one place to another or replacing one government with another. Something more is needed. And so God had been working through history to preserve these people for himself, but God had always planned to do more. He'd always planned to send a better ruler, a better king, to really make things right between us and God and to make things right in the world. And Paul finally says in verse 23 that God has done that. God sent Jesus from this man's descendants, from David's descendants. God has brought to Israel the Saviour Jesus as he promised. And yet, Paul says, the people didn't recognise him. They've been waiting for thousands of years and he comes along and they don't know that it's him. Verse 26, brothers, children of Abraham and you God-fearing Gentiles, it's to us that this message of salvation has been sent. The people of Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognise Jesus. They were waiting for him. They didn't even recognise him. Yet in condemning him, they fulfilled the words of the prophets that are read every Sabbath. Though they found no proper ground for a death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him executed. When they had carried out all that was written about him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. It's a bit like that show, Undercover Boss. I've never actually seen it, but I've seen the ads. I think that's enough, really, to get the kind of basic premise of the show. Uh, But, you know, in that show, what happens is the CEO of the company dresses up as an ordinary worker, uh, and he goes and works alongside the people. And it's a bit like that, right? Jesus, Jesus comes, the CEO of the world, comes into our world, dresses up uh, as an ordinary person, uh, becomes one of us, except that when the boss reveals himself, what happens? Not hugs and embraces and tears and all that kind of stuff, but death. They put him to death. You're not the boss. You're a disgrace. The tragedy of that is, is that it's ultimately self-defeating. God has sent Jesus into, into the world to put the world right, to put us right with God. But we've rejected Jesus. Suppose for a moment that Malcolm Turnbull becomes Australia's greatest Prime Minister. Now, you might think that more likely or less likely than others. It doesn't matter. But suppose for a moment that he becomes Australia's greatest Prime Minister and he, and he makes Australia the envy of the world. And people from all over the world say to themselves, 
that's where I'm going. I'm going to that country. It's the land of promise. And people come flooding in and the population doubles, you know, and Australia is just going great guns. And then those people who've come, and, and even the people, us, you know, people who, who've lived here our whole lives, we think to ourselves, you know what? I reckon we can do Australia better without Malcolm. And then we get rid of him. We vote him out, or maybe we launch a coup. We'd be shooting ourselves in the foot, wouldn't we? The, the, the person who made the, the country great is the person that we depose. People have fled here, come here in that scenario because they want a better country. And they get rid of the very thing that's made that country great. Malcolm Turnbull making Australia the envy of the world might be a pipe dream. But what if there was a ruler who could fix the world in a way that nobody else could? What if there was a ruler who was perfectly just, who always did the right thing, who, whenever there was a court case, always made the right decision? A ruler who couldn't be corrupted by money or by corporate interests or by lobby groups? You didn't need the kind of the, the publications of all the political donations anymore because there was no corruption. What if there was a ruler who always made the best decisions? Not only because he was wise enough to know what was best, but courageous enough to, to, to do it. What if there was a ruler who always made laws that allowed people to flourish rather than making laws that kind of constrict people and, and, and force them into being something which we weren't created by God to be? What if there was a ruler who could put the world back together again, who could fix climate change? What if there was a, God who could, a ruler who could stop earthquakes and violent storms? A ruler who could heal people, who could end the health funding crisis, who could shorten hospital waiting lists to zero. What if there was a ruler who could change people, who could make lazy people productive, who could make selfish people generous, who could make proud people humble, who could make violent people gentle, who could make evil people good. Imagine if there was a ruler like that. And imagine if he came into our world and we crucified him. Two thousand years ago, God sent the solution to our world's problems and we put that man to death. We rejected him. And every day, people reject the very solution that God has sent to fix our broken world and to fix us as broken people. You see, therein lies the conundrum. We say to God, you fix the suffering in the world. And God says... Absolutely, I will do that. And I'm doing it through Jesus. 
And we say, no, I don't like that plan. And then we complain that God isn't fixing the world when the very means of the very solution, the very means by which he will do that is the very thing that we reject. You and I might not have voted for Jesus' death, we might not have driven the nails into his hands, but unless you accept him, you've rejected the God's solution, you've rejected the means by which God will put the world right, the means by which God will put us right with him and right with each other and right with the creation. If you reject Jesus, there is no plan B, it's the only way. Well, Paul recounts the good news of what God has done in the history of Israel. He recounts the bad news of what people did in in putting uh, Jesus to death. But then Paul goes on to show uh, to share the, the, the greater news still, the greater news of what God has done in raising Jesus from the dead. Even though people put Jesus to death, that was all still part of God's plan. Several times Paul says that it was in accordance with Scripture that God did this. Uh, so in verse 32, he says, We tell you the good news, what God had promised our fathers, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. And Paul goes on to quote three Old Testament passages. The first is in verse 33. It's from Psalm 2. You are my son today. I have become your father, it says. It's what's called uh, an enthronement psalm, which is kind of just a fancy way of saying. It's the kind of words that people would use in ancient times when someone was made the king. They would say, you are my son today. I have become your father. It was was, uh, what you did at an enthronement. Jesus is God's king. That's the message. So too, the other Psalms are about God's promise to make one of David's kings, uh, one of David's descendants king. And that descendant would be uh, a descendant who would not see decay, he would be a king who would not see decay. He would be someone who would live forever. The good news about Jesus is that by raising Jesus from the dead, God has shown Jesus to be the king that the world was waiting for. He's that descendant of David, the promised king. He's that descendant of David, David who, who lives forever, who would not see decay, who died and who rose again. The good news is that even though Jesus was rejected and put to death by us, by hum- humanity, the good news is that he didn't stay dead, but that God raised him up. And he raised him up to be the king and ruler of the world that he made. Now, that might not seem like very good news at all, actually. After all, it means that the king who is ruler of the world is the king that we've rejected. The king that we've crucified and humiliated. It reminds me of that film from about 20 years ago. I was horrified to discover that it was about 20 years ago that it came out. It's not a great film, not particularly edifying. Uh, I... I Know What You Did Last Summer. Do you know that film? You might know the sequels, I Still Know What You Did Last Summer and I Still Know What You Did the Summer Before the One Before Last, which never really caught on, that one. But, uh, but uh, the, 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 the story, the plot of the film was that there were uh, four kids travelling in a car one night and they run over a guy and they kill him, right? And they, they uh, dispose of the body uh, and then, but it turns out 
he wasn't really dead. Uh, and he comes back, and the rest of the film is him seeking revenge. He comes back one after another, and he kills them, he kills them off. Is that what Jesus is like? We've put him to death, and now he's spending the rest of his life, the rest of his rule, seeking revenge. No, says Paul. Remarkably, Jesus is, that's not what Jesus is doing. God has raised Jesus from the dead and not declared war, but declared a time of amnesty. Paul says in verse 8, Therefore, my brothers, I want you to know that through Jesus the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him everyone who believes is justified from everything you could not be justified from by the law of Moses. The real problem is not that the world is not all that it could be. That's just the symptom of the problem. The real problem is that we've tried to get rid of God, to try to kill off God and do, off, do our own thing. And so we need forgiveness. We're war criminals. We're rebel warlords. We're terrorists. And we're not fighting against a tyrannical regime. We're not kind of, you know, the noble rebel alliance fighting against the evil power of, uh, you know, who it is, Darth Vader and, and the Emperor. We're not defying Hitler, the most, one of the most evil rulers in the history of mankind. We're terrorists fighting against the good God who made a good world. Because God had loved us so much that he sent his own son to, to die in our place. We need forgiveness. And Paul says the law of Moses and the Old Testament sacrifices and the Old Testament symbols, they could never justify people for the sin of trying to kill off God. But in Jesus people have put God to death in the most vicious, the most insidious way, and yet in the greatest miracle of all, at the very same moment, God triumphed over both us and our sin. Jesus' death simultaneously condemned us as utterly sinful and brought forgiveness for everyone who trusts in Jesus. And Jesus' resurrection testifies that everyone who trusts in him and submits to him will live even though the penalty that we deserve is death. Four kids in a car accidentally run over a guy and he slowly seeks his revenge. We've rejected, disowned and killed and humiliated the God who made us and the God who made our world and the God who keeps us alive at every single moment of the day, and he does not come in revenge, but offers us forgiveness, offers us an amnesty, offers us a new future in a world made right. It's extraordinary. That's the good news. And all we need to do to take part in God's plan to rescue the world is to humble ourselves before God and submit to Jesus. To acknowledge that Jesus is God's Son, God's King, God's Saviour, and to trust that Jesus can put us right with God. I wonder if you've done that. If you have, praise God that you've received the amnesty of God, the forgiveness of God, the justification of God. You've been put right with God.
Praise God that you're free, really free from sin and death, that your name is written in the book of life, that your place in the new creation with God is absolutely secure. But also please realise that if you reject Jesus, there is no other, there's no plan B, there's no other option. If you haven't humbled yourself before Jesus, please take note of Paul's warning here in verse 40. Paul says, take care that what the prophet said does not happen to you. Look, you scoffers, wonder and perish, for I'm going to do something in your days that you would never believe, even if someone told you. Paul says, be careful. He says, take care. Which suggests that becoming a scoffer and rejecting Jesus is is something that might happen almost without us realising it. Be careful. Watch your step. How do you take care that you don't become a scoffer and don't become hardened against Jesus? You make sure that you humble yourself before Christ and that you trust him. You make sure that you hang on, that you keep trusting in Jesus every day. What's the good news about Jesus? The good news about Jesus is that the world has been broken by us as human beings and even though we can't put it right, God can. God has promised to do that and God has done that through Jesus. And all we need to do is to humble ourselves before God's great King Jesus and know that we have a share in the world to come. Let me pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you Uh, for the good world that you have made, uh, for the beautiful creation, uh, Lord, for beautiful creatures, beautiful animals, Lord, for for beautiful people, uh, for the echoes of your kindness that we see in the kindness of other human beings. Uh, And yet, Lord, we're also conscious of the fact that we live in a deeply broken world, Uh, where there's pain and suffering and evil, selfishness and pride. And Lord, we're only too conscious of the fact that we're unable to piece the world back together. We know we can't piece our own lives together, Lord, let alone piece together a broken world. And so we thank you for the good news that in Jesus Christ you have done that and you are doing that that you sent Jesus to fix our world, to fix us, to put us right with you, to put us right with each other. But Lord, we pray that you would enable us not to reject Jesus, but to submit ourselves to him, to receive his death, which pays the penalty for our sin. Uh, and which opens the way up for us to know you. Father, we pray that each one of us would receive that message in our hearts, know the truth of it, and know the joy of having received that forgiveness through Jesus Christ, that release uh, from slavery to sin and from the condemnation of sin. And Father, help us too to be able to explain and tell that good news to others as well that they might receive that precious amnesty that you have given us in Jesus Christ.
We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.